Let us continue our series in Luke's Gospel, again turning to the 10th chapter of Luke. Luke 10, beginning in verse 25. Let us pray together. Our Father, this minister, as he brings this exposition of your holy word, believes what you tell us in the Bible, all of the Bible, and believes this morning when you tell us that it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Father, the time will come in which this minister will pray his last prayer and preach his last sermon. He that winneth souls is wise. Help those of us who preach your word to do so with complete and utter dependence upon your Holy Spirit. The regenerating power of your Spirit is always efficacious. That wonderful working of your Spirit grants to your people persevering grace as we hear your word and as we also come together to the table of the Lord so regularly. Give to us, we pray, a love for your word. Help your ministers to preach, as old Baxter said, as a dying man to dying men. As never sure to preach again, may every sermon exalt Jesus, who is the great and only need of us all. And we pray that you would open hearts this morning, lost hearts to hear your word for the very first time within their souls. And the hearts of your people gathered here to worship your name, open our hearts, remove all hardness and callousness, and may your spirit work within us. Help us to set aside every other concern but the concern of hearing you, the Lord Jesus, speak to us from the pages of the book that you have given us the Holy Bible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's Word and stand? Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. This is the Word of God. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. 
But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, of course, we have just read together a passage that is very familiar to us. Even people who don't read the Bible, who don't come to worship, people who do not claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ, they all know this parable that Jesus tells in this passage. Now, the typical reading of this text is simply to say, well, it shows us that we're to show mercy to other people. Well, yes, it does. It's certainly there. It's certainly certainly what is being taught here, but that's not the core of it. Uh, others say, similarly, that we are taught to, uh, to engage in humanitarian service uh, by this passage. Now, we are all, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, called to show mercy. However, let me point out that the point of this text is not to teach humanitarian service. There are no good works for the unregenerate, as I will make plain as we move along. So what is the point of the text? What is the Lord Jesus teaching in this passage? What should we take from it first and foremost? What is the point? Before we make the application to ourselves as believers about showing mercy to others, what is the real point of the text? Well, let's look at the text together. And the first thing we see is a trick question, a trick question. A theologian, you see a scribe, a lawyer, came to Jesus. That is, someone who is learned in the law, who spends all of his time trying to understand the law and teaching the law, a theologian came to Jesus, a theologian who should have known better than to ask Jesus the question he does, a theologian who should have known the answer to this question, a theologian came to Jesus with an insincere question. He came to test Jesus by trying to catch him. We read in verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test and saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the man's question, even though it was an insincere question, is the question, is it not? It is the one ultimate question that we all should ask at some point or other. It churns in our hearts. We all know something is desperately wrong within our hearts, that our hearts need writing. What must I do to be sure, to to be certain that I will inherit eternal life? Are you asking that question? Is there someone here and you have been asking yourself that question? Do you know the answer to that question? Are you sure that you know the answer to that question? All for us hangs on the answer to this question for time and for eternity. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So he came with a trick question. But then moving along, we see, secondly, a heart-exposing question. 
a heart-exposing question. Jesus, as he so often did, answers the question with a question. He's probing the man's heart. Uh, He makes us face the eternal seriousness of our questions even when asked insincerely. So basically the Lord Jesus says, what does the law say? You're a scribe, you're a lawyer, you spend all of your time in the law. What does the law say? say? Well, the law answers that I'm to have perfect love toward God and man. Right, says Jesus, obey and live. And so we read in verses 26 to 28, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now what Jesus is really saying to him is, if you obey the law perfectly, you will live. He is saying to him, if you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself, you will live. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you? Have I done that? Has anyone other than the Lord Jesus done that? You see, the problem is that the law is holy and just and good, and we are not. It is a reflection of God's character, and its standard is one of perfection, and we cannot keep it. No one can perfectly obey the law but one, and that is the one to whom this scribe is talking, the very one who is already on his way to Jerusalem so that he might shed his blood and pay the penalty of our having broken that law, the penalty of our sin. Now, you know the theologian way down deep knows that he does not love all men perfectly and that he does not love God first and foremost. He does not love by the standard of God's moral law. He knows full well that he does not have eternal life on the basis of this law. Jesus has cornered the man, but he's not ready to crawl out of his hiding place into the open, and he looks for an excuse for not treating all people with love and compassion. He's trying to cover his guilt. In verse 29, it says that he was attempting to justify himself. He was attempting to be confident in his own position. But to know God's mercy is to come to an end of our own righteousness. It is to admit that we are naked, poor, blind, and wretched, To know God's mercy is to know that I am bankrupt, that I could do nothing to earn that mercy, that I could do nothing that would cause God to be moved by something within me to save me. And so do you not see that the requirements of the law of God are just not attainable in perfection by any of us, that because we cannot obey them, it shows that we have sinful, needy hearts, that you and I need a Redeemer, that the only way that we can be right with God is by the righteousness which Christ has spun on the loom of His cross, and that you must have Him to have a right relationship with God. Reading Jonathan Edwards again in his faithful narrative, this is one of those narratives in which he is talking about the, one, of the, one of the marvelous, true Holy Spirit-sent revivals that came in his ministry there in Northampton. And as he was looking at what God is doing in the, in the hearts and lives of his people, Edwards 
The great Jonathan Edwards said, Thus sometimes when persons have seemed evidently to be stripped of all their own righteousness and to have stood self-condemned as guilty of death, they have been comforted with a joyful and satisfying view that the mercy and grace of God is sufficient for them. Oh, how I pray for that, how I plead for that, how I want that among us and in the church in our country today that we would come to an end of ourselves, that we would see that we are guilty sinners, that we would be stripped of all of our self-righteousness, and then we would see the mercy and grace of God only is sufficient for such a sinner as I. I pray that someone will walk out saying that for the very first time today. I see the spirituality of the law. I see my need of Christ. I see that I do not love God and my neighbor as the law calls me to. I need someone to save me and change and transform my heart. So don't try to justify yourself as did this man. You need the one who has paid on the cross the crushing load of the debt of sinners. Let the law in all of its perfection, as Paul says in Romans 3, let it shut your mouth. So that you stop saying, Lord, I have this in my favor, and this in my favor, and this in my favor. We have nothing that we can bring to God for self-justification, for acceptance with Him, because of the spirituality of the law. No more excuses. Let the law shut your mouth, and then the gospel to open your mouth that you may say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and to open your mouth in praise to Him for free mercy that is not dependent upon anything that you could ever have done. Mercy. Now, mercy is the very thing the man couldn't understand. Mercy is the very thing he didn't get. Shall I love those who aren't even Jews? Shall I love those people who are not like me? Shall I love those people who don't even know anything about the law? Should I love people who are not of my nationality and not of my race? My heart will not allow it. That's this man. And so Jesus tells a parable and takes us into the very heart of mercy with, thirdly, the real question. The real question. And the real question, well, you remember the question the man asked, right? The man asks, who is my neighbor? In verse 29. All right, okay. Jesus, I know that I'm, to be, uh, that I'm to be merciful to my neighbor. My fellow Jews, right? Who is my neighbor? He was willing to have an open heart to people like himself. He was very willing to have an open heart to other Jews. But Jesus knows his heart, that it is closed, that it is calloused, that it is hateful, the real question is not, who is my neighbor? The real question is, to whom am I a neighbor? The text makes it clear. What kind of heart do I need to love Gentile and Jew alike? Where do I get such a heart as this? That's the question to which, the real question to which Jesus is driving this man. And so Jesus tells the parable in verses 30 through 35. Shall we read it again? Jesus replied, he's answering the question, who is my neighbor? 
Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now that's the parable. We don't press parables too far, but it's a parable. So God's priest comes along. There's this man. He's been beaten. He's half dead. God's priest comes along. He goes on the other side of the road in order to avoid him. He doesn't want to be contaminated, or perhaps he just doesn't want to bother. Maybe he doesn't want to see him too closely, because then he might indeed think, well, maybe I better do something about this. We don't know the reason. The Levite, also who ministered in the temple. Now, these were people who ministered in the temple of the Lord. The Levite ministers in the temple. He passed by on the other side of the road also. Who will show mercy to this dying man? One from the most despised group the Jews viewed with opprobrium, a Samaritan, a half-breed, people who didn't understand the law, people who, who had this false place of worship and sacrifice, unclean, avoided, this is the man who showed mercy. He came, he bound his wounds, he puts medicine on his wounds, he cared for the man at his own inconvenience, he put the man on his own mule, his own animal, he took him to the inn, he stayed the night to care for him, and then he provided for his continued care with a promise that he would pay when he returned whatever the price might be for his care. And then Jesus drives home the question in verses 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? You see, the real question here is found here. To whom are you a neighbor? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Now, don't you find it in verse 37 very interesting? When Jesus asks the question, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor? That he doesn't say, well, it was the Samaritan. He seems not to be able to bring the word Samaritan to his lips. He says, the one who showed him mercy. He won't say the Samaritan who showed him mercy. He just says, the one who showed him mercy. Now, we're not told how the man responded, whether he found salvation in Christ, whether he forsook his self-righteousness, whether he became merciful to others. We're just not told. And I think, perhaps, the reason that we are not told is so that the question here opens my heart and opens your heart. 
so that we may ask ourselves where our hearts are. How do I respond to the absolutes of God's law? Have I found a refuge in Christ? Is my heart changed by grace? Do I show mercy now because I have been shown mercy, free mercy, from the throne of God? But all of this, I think, leads us to, fourthly, the deeper question. The deeper question. And the deeper question is, who is the real good Samaritan? Now, I think that's an appropriate question because we are post-resurrection readers of this passage, it is perfectly appropriate, yes, even needful for us to see the passage in light of the completion of Luke's gospel and the completion of the Bible as a whole. And when we ask the question, who is the real good Samaritan? The answer is the one who ultimately shows mercy to the needy is our Lord Jesus Christ. He, the second person of the Trinity, came down and assumed human nature. God became man. And when no man cared for my soul, he cared for my soul. When no one could bind my wounds, he bound my wounds. When no grace was to be seen, he was grace coming to me, grace incarnate. When others passed me by, he made me his own. All mercy from now on in my life must take its shape from the mercy that has been shown to me by Jesus. He shed his own life's blood for me. How can I not, because I am redeemed by his precious blood, also now care about others, whoever they may be and whatever their need may be? 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So the real issue for the theologian that came to Jesus, and the real issue for me and for you, the real issue for the theologian that came to Jesus is not that he does not know whom to love, It is that he does not know how to love. Repeating myself, the real question for this theologian and for us, this theologian who came to Jesus, the real issue for him is that is not that he does not know whom to love. He knows what the law requires. It is that he doesn't know how to love. He needed a new heart, and only Jesus can give a new heart. What kind of Savior is this? I want you to think about it. What kind of Savior is it? God has shown mercy to sinners, ill-deserving sinners, hell-deserving sinners, to unloving people, to uncharitable people, to self-centered people, to sinners, guilty, blind, unable to lift a finger, sinners like us. And humanity, Jonathan Edwards puts it so well, humanity closely shut up within itself to the exclusion of others. Those are the people Christ has loved. 
And that is the kind of person for whom the Lord of glory went to the cross. And I think that has a lot of implication for how I live, and you too. Don't you agree? Hmm? So let's take this incident and this parable, and let's, let me just give you a stream of concluding thoughts. A man comes to Jesus in a self-righteous spirit, asking Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. Jesus knows his heart and drives the law home to him. By means of the parable, he shows the man that his life does not match the requirement of the law of God. Now in Mark 10, if you're thinking, you will remember that in Mark 10, there's something similar. In Mark 10, the rich young ruler came to Jesus. And do you remember the question? He asks the same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus, knowing the heart of that rich young man, knowing his heart, he tells him to sell everything that he has and give to the needy. Now, what again is the point? The law exposed that young rich man's covetous heart. The point of today's text, the man had compassion only for people like himself, and Jesus uses the law to show him his heart and his need of redemption. So the point that I want to make here is, again, the spirituality of the law. Do we understand what Jesus is doing here in his evangelism? Jesus is not saying to the man, go and do this and you're going to have everlasting life. He's saying to the man, go and do this, and the man knows he can't do it. He's driving him out of his hiding places and showing him his need of the Redeemer. The point here is the same point that is made by Jesus in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. You know how there's a series there in which the spirituality of the law is unpacked by Jesus. In Matthew 5, he says, for example, you have heard in the law, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that if, if any man look upon a woman and lust after her in his heart, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Exposing the hearts of those of us who are consumed with sexual lust. Or the Lord Jesus says, you've heard that you are uh, to love your neighbor. But I tell you that if you call your neighbor a fool, if you, if you do not show kindness and grace to your neighbor, you're a murderer in your heart. Now that's what Jesus is doing in this passage as well. He's showing us the spirituality of the law. Do you see it? That none of us meets the spirituality of the good, perfect, and holy law of God that each of us is condemned by it. And when we see that, we see, I need a new heart. And there's only one who can give it. And this is the missing note in evangelism today. Jesus often used the law to show sinners their impotence and to show them their need before that ultimate standard. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians 3. The Apostle Paul is saying the same thing there when he points to the cross as the only solution 
In Galatians 3, for example, in verse 10, Galatians 3.10, Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. So you want to be saved by the law? If you're going to be saved by the law, you will do to perfection everything that it requires. That's what Paul is saying. Well, you can't do that. So what happens? Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And here's the solution to the dilemma. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So what Paul is saying here is exactly what Jesus is saying in this passage and to the rich young ruler and in Matthew 5. He is saying, here is the law in all of its perfection, reflective of the character of God himself. And it requires, therefore, perfect, personal, absolute inflexible obedience. And you can't do it. And now for those who are saved, there's another message. But before going there, I want to say, if you, if you are lost, if you, if you think that you can contribute one thimbleful of merit to your salvation, then you're relying upon works of the law. You're lost and you will be lost forever. Rather, let the perfection of the law drive you out of yourself and away from your self-righteousness so that you say, I need Christ who shed his blood to pay the penalty of the broken law, my debt on that cross. Come to Christ and trust in him. But now, most of us here, I believe, have trusted in Christ alone for our salvation. So for those who are saved by the one who met the requirements of the law and who paid the penalty, you and I, by regeneration, have been given new hearts. We are now free to serve other people. We are free no longer to be self-preoccupied and closed in upon ourselves And when we serve, we serve because we have been served by the greatest servant of all. And when we serve, it's not because somehow we think we're earning some favor with God. We serve because we have new hearts that want to serve. We serve because Jesus served us. We just love because the Holy Spirit has poured his love and joy into our souls. We care about other people because we've been cared for and are cared for by an infinitely loving Heavenly Father who sent His Son to die for us. So for those who are saved by the one who met the requirements of the law, we have new hearts, and we are now free to serve others. Isn't that Paul's point in Ephesians 2? By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You're saved by grace alone. And then he moves from verse 8 to verse 10, and in verse 10 he said, now you are the people who will begin to do the works that have been ordained for you to do. So don't get the cart before the horse. It's not that you work and somehow you receive grace. That's not it. It's that you receive grace 
and then you are free to do good works as a result of God's grace in your heart. Do you realize, have you given thought to the fact that no one who is not a Christian, that no one who is not in Christ, that no one who does not have faith in him, no one who is not in Christ can do a good work, biblically defined. A good work for it to be a good work. I suggest that you go to the Westminster Confession and read the chapter on good works. Just read it. For a good work to be a good work, it must be done in faith in Christ. It must be accepted in Christ, and it must be done to the glory of God. No unbeliever can do those things. In Proverbs 21, verse 4, we are told the plowing of the wicked is sin. You understand the point? Here you have a Christian who plows his field. He wants to feed his family. Here you have an unbeliever who plows his field. He wants to feed his family. They both want to earn a living. They're both doing externally the same thing. This unbeliever over here who plows the field may do it because he really does care about his family. But what he does is not done in faith in Christ. It is not accepted in him. It is not done to the glory of God. The believing farmer over here plows his field. He wants to provide for his family, wants to earn for a living, but it's done with faith in Christ. It is done because of what Jesus did is accepted completely in Christ, and he plows his field to the glory of God. The point is, the plowing of the wicked is sin. We are glad when the unbeliever feeds the hungry. We are glad when he supports a hospital but it is not a good work biblically defined. And that is how seriously the Bible takes sin and the heart attitude of an act that is performed. Even altruism is not biblically defined a good work. Now, Having come to faith in Christ, having been received by him in his mercy and his grace, believers in Jesus can actually perform good works because they are the result of grace and are completely accepted through the sacrifice of Jesus. And we who know Christ should be involved in good works, not to be saved because we are saved, not to be redeemed, but because we are redeemed, not because we earn merit, but because the merit of Christ has been freely granted to us. James 2, 15 through 16, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? 1 John three seventeen and 18, but whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Proverbs 14, 31, he that oppresseth the poor reproacheth his maker, but he that 
honoreth him hath mercy on the poor. Proverbs 19.17, he that, that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath will be, will be given, will he pay him again. Matthew 25, on the day of judgment, the Lord Jesus saying to us, you fed the hungry in my name. You clothed the naked in my name. You visited those in prison in my name. Lord, when did we do that? Whensoever you did this to the least of these, you did it unto me. Now, that's the Christian life. But get it. You can't live a Christian life if you're not a Christian. A Christian life is a result of God's sovereign, free, redeeming grace. I ask you, is there someone, some person, some group, some nationality, some race, some people with certain dispositions, some people in some part of the world, is there someone to whom you would refuse to be a neighbor? Is there someone that you despise within your heart? If you're a Christian, you and I must repent of that. And we must say, God has so loved me that I also will love whoever God puts in my path. So, Christian, you have been shown infinite mercy. Your life, therefore, is like paper. And mercy is like the watermark on the paper. So that when your Christian life, when the paper is held up to the light, the watermark of mercy should be clearly seen. Because it's more than an appearance of love, it is an indelible mark because we have been shown mercy and have a sense of being overwhelmed by God's mercy to us. So before I'm done, I want to say two things. Well, maybe more than two. Again, if you do not know Christ, don't walk out of here and think that when Jesus says, hey, just go and do good works and you're going to be saved, Jesus is showing the man he can't. He's showing him the the high perfection of God's law. You need a Redeemer. And to say to those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, oh, haven't we been shown a mercy that is incalculable, a grace that is beyond measure, a love that is beyond degree? Then I also surely, surely can love others around me, show mercy, and do works of love and mercy, and charity, all because of Jesus. So I'm done except to ask you for this. Will you pray for your ministers? Because I see here Jesus evangelizing in a way that's pretty much forgotten today. So I ask you, will you pray for your ministers here to be faithful preachers after the pattern of the Savior who use the law of God to show the sinner his need, and to expose the heart and to preach the gospel as the only remedy for sin. And this requires, this requires in your ministers real heart work because we have to know the law of God. We have to be driven out of every refuge 
And we have to know the grace of God in Christ and that He's our Redeemer in order to proclaim law and gospel from this pulpit. So your ministers need that real heart work that only the Holy Spirit can perform. Let me tell you. You know the name Robert Murray McShane? One of the great Scottish worthies, 19th century Scottish Presbyterian minister. He died at age 29, actually burned himself out in faithful service to the Lord. Robert Murray McShane's ministry was heaven-blessed. So many people came to know Christ. So many Christians were upbuilt as he ministered the gospel in Dundee, Scotland. And on one occasion, there was a visitor to the church where he had pastored there in Dundee. A man walked in, and the sexton of the church could see that there was this awe on this man's face as this man contemplated Murray, Robert Murray McShane's ministry. And so the sexton walked up to him, found out that the sexton had actually sat under Robert Murray McShane's ministry. And he said to him, can you tell me the secret of this man's success in ministry? The sexton said, come with me. Took him in the rear, Robert Murray McShane's study, and there was his desk. He said, sit at his desk. The man sat at his desk. And then the sexton said, Now take your head and put it in your hands and weep. Then he took the man out into the sanctuary. He said, now climb up into the high pulpit. Climbed up into the high pulpit. He said, now stretch out your hands and weep. Why was Robert Murray McShane's ministry heaven-blessed? Because he wept before the Lord and confessed his own sin, and he wept before the Lord over the sins of others. Because the Holy Spirit did that heart work in him that is necessary. Because a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. So will you pray for your ministers that that heart work is done, that we may do evangelism the way Jesus did, that we may preach the way the Bible tells us to, that we may exalt Jesus and lift high the cross? Will you pray for us? Because it's not simply a matter of understanding the text. It's that. That's hard work. It's a matter of having your heart brought into conformity with the text and into conformity with Jesus. But, do you know what, Kristen? You need that heart work too, don't you? God's people said, Amen. Amen.